Welcome to the Vital Health Podcast. I'm Jodie Duval and I'm a functional naturopath in Perth, WA. This is a place where you can expand your knowledge on how to optimise your health and realise your full potential. We'll have cutting-edge information with expert guests and having lots of fun along the way. Get ready to be empowered and motivated to reach your higher vitality and find your ultimate potential. Let's go! talk with Greg Potter and we go deep into the research behind nutrition and biological clocks so chrononutrition and we talk all aspects of sleep and we dive real deep into what makes a good sleep what impacts sleep and what you can do to improve your sleep this is a very very informative podcast that will expand your mind even blow your mind it sure did mine and I really enjoyed the conversation uh, Greg and I had So Greg has a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science in Exercise Physiology from Marlborough University, where he coached a sprinter to four gold medals in the European Championships. Greg has also worked with groups such as the United States Naval Special Warfare Command on health and performance optimization, and he is now Chief Scientific Officer for a digital health startup. Greg's part of PhD work at the University of Leeds on sleep, diet and metabolic health was featured by the likes of BBC World Service and Washington Post. We hope you enjoy, have a fantastic listen to this, ask us questions if you want after, and lots of information where you can find Greg right at the end. We hope you enjoy. All right. Hey, Greg, welcome to the Revital Health Podcast, and thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time today, and I can't wait to talk about chrononutrition and sleep optimization with you. So... Let's get started. Tell me a little bit about you, where you've come from, a little bit about your story and your your reason for being so interested in this field. Sure. And thank you very much for the invitation today. I am co-founder and chief science officer of a startup company over here named Resilient Nutrition, which makes food products designed to make feeling and performing better, simple and tasty. And that's only been going for about six months so far. And before that, and I still continue some of this work now, I was working as a consultant, primarily aiming to help people feel and perform better. Much of that work often focuses on helping people sleep better specifically. And my background was first in exercise science. I've got an undergrad and a master's degree in sport and exercise science from Loughborough University. And I did a lot of coaching during that time, working with athletes from various sports, but primarily strength and power sports. And I also did a bit of work at the rugby football union, working in the sports science and sports medicine department. And then I did a PhD at the University of Leeds on the intersection between sleep, circadian rhythms, nutrition, and metabolism. And in addition to all of that, I am particularly interested in how all of the different lifestyle behaviors that we engage in influence our health and risk of various different chronic diseases. And to that end, I spent much of last year working on a startup project that didn't come to fruition, but it was an app that was designed to provide people with personalized health guidance to mitigate the development of chronic disease and improve performance. So I'm broadly interested in how 
all of these different lifestyle factors from physical activity to nutrition to sleep influence how we function from one day to the next. Mm, it's, it's also fascinating. And the app, that sounds like that, that did not take off because of some sort of reason being that it wasn't used like successfully or was it just another reason behind that? Because that sounds like that would be very useful for a lot of people. Mm, it would be and mm. something that I'm still very interested in. I think it didn't take off for various different reasons and I won't go into all of those but sure. what I'll say is that there is a big opportunity mm. to develop something like that. I don't think that anybody is doing that very effectively right now. I think one of the issues is that it's quite a difficult sell. Yeah. Telling people to eat better today and increase their physical activity and so on in the hope that in 20 years time, their health is a bit better. It's, it's a long feedback loop. And whereas a lot of the people listening to this podcast are very interested in things like sleeping better, I think Joe blogs from the general public whose health isn't necessarily so good and who's not so engaged in these topics might not be drawn towards an app like that quite so much. And so one of the issues I think is that a lot of the existing apps are developed for people such as ourselves, Jody, when they actually need to be developed for people who aren't necessarily involved in these subjects professionally and aren't nearly so interested. Although I think that in general, people's interest in health is probably on the rise. Yeah, I agree. But you're right. It's one of the most difficult tasks for people to change those those things in their life to have no immediate response uh, so it's something that no magic pill you know in clinic here that's one of the most difficult things for me to be selling people or guiding people with is those lifestyle changes so let's get started and i wanted to chat about what chrononutrition is because i'm sure people have heard of this but maybe not so um aware of what the actual meanings are behind it. Mm -hmm. So the way that I describe chrononutrition quite simply is the reciprocal relationship between our nutrition and our body's clocks. And these clocks program daily changes in our biology and hence behavior to optimize our bodies for certain things at certain times of day. And the most obvious of these different rhythmic processes is the sleep-wake cycle. And so the idea is that it's possible to tune what and when you eat according to the timing of your body's clock to optimize how your body responds to your nutrition. But at the same time, there's quite strong evidence now showing that what and when you eat influence the function of your body's clock system. And I think that as a practitioner, the appeal of chrononutrition is that it's often difficult getting people to change the composition of their diet, but asking people to not explicitly improve their diet composition, but instead focus on changing when they eat is an easier sell. And the advantage also is that 
when people change the timing of their diet, the foods that they consume also tend to change because we typically consume different things at different times of day. So for example, most people consume alcohol at night. And so if you have people change their nutrition such that they stop consuming any calorie containing items later in the day, then they will also tend to reduce their alcohol intake as one example. Mm, absolutely. So, so with that, um, I wanted to dive into the differences in times of the day and eating in different times. And as well as obviously when you're traveling time zones and jet lag that throws all of that out, but in terms of ideal times, eating times and fasting times, what, have you noticed across the research and further to that what would the difference if if there is any in males and females so i'll start with the sex differences mm -hmm. and what is that hasn't been a great deal of research looking at this subject specifically we know something about differences between the body's clocks of men and women respectively and the differences aren't very big. People know that women go through puberty a little earlier than males do. And as a result of that, there is a small difference between, for example, their sleep timing, between around the onset of puberty and around the menopause, such mm -hmm. that because males go through puberty later, their body's clocks keep getting later for longer. And then we reach our latest points around the end of adolescence, after which our body's clocks start shifting earlier until the grave effectively. But what that means is that because most females stop maturing at around 19 and a half years old and most males at around 21 years old, males have an additional one and a half years of getting later. And so from the age of around 20 until around 50, they're a little later on average. So there's that difference in the body's clocks. But then also there are, of course, differences in how men and women respond to interventions such as fasting. And these aren't that well characterized. Historically, there's been a massive sex bias in the number of men versus the number of women included in studies such that people tend to select males in their studies because they think that they're more straightforward to study because if they're of reproductive age, then they don't have to worry about cycles and how the menstrual cycle influences numerous different biological processes. But with respect to fasting specifically, it seems that during prolonged fasting, women have slightly lower blood sugar levels than men, despite having higher free fatty acids. And that suggests that they're somewhat protected from that free fatty acid induced insulin resistance, which is quite well characterized. If I was going to speculate about sex differences in response to regular use of fasting or to regular use of relatively short time restricted eating which i'll get into then my guess is that women's reproductive systems might be a little bit more sensitive to very long fasting periods 
or to regulate use of relatively short time restricted eating periods. And <clears throat> the reason I say this is that we know that in men, when people use time restricted eating, they tend to see a reduction in their testosterone levels and IGF-1, both of which are involved in various different anabolic processes. And if that translates to women, then I suspect that that might have some bearing on their reproductive function. But anecdotally, I just think that women need to be a bit more careful with prolonged fasting. And that's most relevant if you're somebody who's trying to conceive right now. Now, I mentioned time-restricted eating. This is a chrononutrition approach that entails confining consumption of all calorie-containing items to 12 hours or less each 24-hour cycle. And people define that a little bit differently, but that's the definition that I use. And the reason that people have started to study this is that it makes sense in terms of chronobiology. So specifically what I mean is that our bodies have their own biological clocks, which I mentioned earlier. And interestingly, if you have somebody, for example, go into a cave and experience conditions in which they don't know what time of day it is, they aren't in the presence of a light-dark cycle, there aren't fluctuations in temperature, there aren't fluctuations in food availability, and you measure their body's clocks, then you'd find that their body's clocks aren't precisely 24 hours. And so they need to be reset each day in alignment with the 24-hour light-dark cycle. And the most important time cue or zeitgeber in resetting our clocks each day is our patterns of exposure to light-dark cycles. And we have specialized cells in our eyes that keep track of our patterns of light exposure and then relay this information back to a structure in the brain that we colloquially know as the master clock, it's the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the hypothalamus. This then relays information back to the pineal gland in the brain that synthesizes melatonin and melatonin then is transported in the blood to cells throughout the body and melatonin serves to tell cells that it's dark outside when the eyes aren't receiving any light information and melatonin thereby acts as an internal signal of darkness because for example our liver cells probably aren't exposed to much direct light so they need their own cues telling them what time of day it is melatonin is one of these there are others including some signals that are sent through the nervous system for instance but that is one mechanism by which our body's clocks are reset each day. In recent years, it's become clear that our patterns of eating and fasting are also important to setting the timing of so-called clocks in many of the tissues in our bodies. So whereas the light-dark cycle is the most important zeitgeber in setting the master clock in the brain each day, it seems that our patterns of eating and fasting may be more important to setting so-called peripheral clocks which are all of those clocks in our cells outside of the master clock and these peripheral clocks exist at different levels but you can think of each of the tissues in your body as having their own clocks so your skeletal muscle for instance or your heart or your liver and the purpose of these of course is to optimize these tissues for certain processes so for example your skeletal muscles are primed for physical activity 
during the daytime. And that's in part because of how our body temperature is regulated, but it's also related to our patterns of exercise, which tune the clocks in our muscles to prepare them for activity at certain times of day. Or if you look at the gastrointestinal system, then you'll find that the motility of the GI tract is higher during the biological daytime. That's one of the reasons why you're more inclined to go to the toilet at certain times of day than others. But there are roughly 24 hour changes in the composition of the gut microbiota, for instance, also, as well as numerous other processes in that particular tract. And so the point is that if that's the case, and if the foods and drinks that we consume influence the timing of these clocks, then we can use time restricted eating at regular times of day from day to day to synchronize these clocks in the periphery such that they're well aligned with the master clock and we thereby give our bodies strong time cues and experience numerous different beneficial consequences of having a robust circadian system and the circadian system is the system that optimizes our 24-hour biological cycles so with that said and i'm sorry this is a very long answer but very good no it's good it's good the the research on time restricted eating has been very interesting so far it's somewhat preliminary Mm. because it just hasn't been studied for that long the term chrononutrition itself was only coined in the early 2000s but there has recently been a systematic review of time-restricted eating interventions that have been done to date. And what it showed is that of the 19 different studies that have been done so far, time-restricted eating consistently led to small reductions in body weight and fat mass. It preserved fat-free mass, so muscle tissue, bone tissue, and so on. But it led to some other cardiometabolic benefits too. So it reduced systolic blood pressure, it reduced fasting, glucose levels, triglycerides. And so overall, it seems to be beneficial, particularly among people who have poorer cardiometabolic health, because those are the people who have been primarily studied. If you're already in excellent health, then I suspect that it's less likely to have such potent effects but I don't see any real downside to trying a time-restricted eating period of six to 10 hours each day. Now, one thing to consider is the timing of this caloric period. Mm. And when I say caloric period, I just mean the time elapsed between your first calorie-containing items of the day, so that might be a coffee with cream in it, and your last calorie-containing items of the day, so maybe that's the end of your dinner. Mm. And... The studies that have been done so far have shown that interventions of four to 10 hour time-restricted eating periods can be beneficial. The shorter periods, so perhaps four to six hours, tend to be a bit harder for people to stick to. And so it's important that people choose something that's practical based on their lifestyle demands. But with that said, what seems to be the case, based in particular on some work that's been done by Courtney Peterson, is that if you can have that caloric period earlier in your waking day, then you'll probably experience more beneficial effects than if it's aligned later in your waking day. And I say waking day because historically people have spoken about 
nutrition timing relative to the clock time, but it's more relevant to speak about nutrition timing relative to so-called biological time. And so I just discuss this relative to the sleep-wake cycle because that's most mm. practical for most people. And so what I would say is that as a rule of thumb, it's probably wise to stop consuming any calorie containing items at least two hours before bedtime. And if you if you're implementing a six to 10 hour caloric period, then I probably wouldn't start that until perhaps half an hour after you would naturally wake up. If you woke without an alarm clock, recognizing that a lot of people now wake to alarm clocks, although fewer people do right now because of the, COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> and then an, another factor which seems to be important is that people maintain relatively regular eating patterns from one day to the next. And there's a researcher on this side of the pond named Ian McDonald, who's done some nice work looking at this in young women. And what he's shown is that over a two week intervention, when young women consume a fixed number of meals each day, so six meals each day, as opposed to a varying number of meals each day, three to nine meals, such that on average, the total number of meals is the same. The regular meal condition leads to improved diet-induced thermogenesis, so the women burn more calories after consuming their food, which is a good thing, better appetite regulation, and some small improvements in certain indices of cardiometabolic health. And so just to summarize that, and I haven't really gone into specifics of many studies, I would say you want to align your diet timing with your sleep-wake timing such that you're waiting at least half an hour until your first calorie-containing items of the day. You want to consume more of your calorie-containing items within perhaps a six to 10-hour caloric period each day that finishes at least two hours before your bedtime. And the earlier within your waking day that you can fix that, the better. There are a couple of other variables that I would consider, but I'm going to pause here because that was already probably one of the longest answers that you've had on your show. <laughs> that was very, very precise and well-spoken. So um, I was enthralled. <laughs> I just wanted to backtrack just a little bit and ask you something additionally to that is, I know you say within certain time, sets and light wake um you know like dark cycles but how about specific timing of meals so i know sachin panda talks in his book about um which i which i've read a couple of years a year ago i think it was um about the same time so eating at a very similar time of the day what's your perspective on that and how that impacts this um, even this fasting and then preparation or readiness, I guess, for digestive function. I think it is important. And the tricky thing is that it's not as if there have been many studies, at least to my knowledge, that have looked at, for example, fixing the caloric period. So having, say, a six-hour period each day, but then shifting that around from one day to the next. But if you consider that when people have people undergo time-restricted eating, they do ask them to maintain regular meal times from one day to the next, or at least a regular caloric onset and offset each day, 
then that's likely one of the things that leads to these beneficial effects of time-restricted eating interventions that have been demonstrated so far. One thing that I'll add is that my guess is that having regular meal times from one day to the next is probably more important for some people than others. Okay. So for example, if the quality of your diet is very high, then my guess is that diet timing is relatively less important. If you are a shift worker Mm. with very variable light dark cycles, then I think it's probably more important. And that's based in part on some preclinical data and much of Sachin's work has been done in non-human animals, so rodents specifically. So I think it's a little bit difficult to say, but I see no downside in maintaining meal times that are as regular as possible from one meal to the next, from day to day. And in terms of the spacing of those meals, I typically suggest that people wait three to six hours between their meals. And there aren't very strong reasons for this. In reality, the research that's been done on snacking is confounded by several factors and people find it difficult to define what snacking really is. But typically Mm -hmm. when people snack, they are less mindful of what they're eating. The quality of foods that they select at snacks typically aren't quite Mm -hmm. so high. And then I also think that in terms of entraining our appetites to peak at certain times of day and therefore be low at certain times of day, having regular meal times is likely important. And then in terms of some other health-related factors, this might be important. So one, for example, is that it seems that when people consume an adequate bolus of dietary protein, they'll temporarily maximally stimulate the synthesis of new proteins in their muscles and muscle tissue is of course so important to numerous different aspects of health but particularly things like blood sugar regulation and you then need to wait a few hours probably four hours or so before you can maximally stimulate the synthesis of new proteins in your muscles again because of a particular effect which has been dubbed the muscle full effect and i won't go into details of that but i think waiting a few hours between meals makes a lot of sense. And one thing to add, which is relevant to what I've just said, is that perhaps counterintuitively, one of Courtney Peterson's studies has shown that when people implement early time restricted eating that finishes by perhaps 2 to 3 p.m. each day, they actually have lower appetite in the evening, which is very counterintuitive to most people. But the point is that the times of day at which you eat train your appetite hormones to peak at corresponding times. So if you're not used to eating breakfast, then you're not going to feel hungry at breakfast. If you want to start consuming breakfast, then if you go through a few days of having breakfast, then after repeating that for several days, you'll probably wake up in the morning and find food more appealing than you did before starting that. Yeah. Very interesting. It also, I would say, come down to just basic energy preservation, not needing to produce it at that time because there is no food coming ready down to to be digested. So um, I guess it it makes sense um, to be doing that and how the appetite would not be there. So, yeah, very interesting. Mm. All right. So... I think that really gives me a really good idea of what chrononutrition is and also ideal times, eating, fasting. 
I love the, the, the time frames. Do you, do you know where a lot of people sit in terms of their preference for eating earlier in the day, later in the day? And there's, is there any differences in the research towards people um, who are different chronotype or a, uh, you know, males versus females? Anything there? Yeah, it's very interesting. Mm. In terms of different chronotypes, It's been shown quite consistently in the literature that later chronotypes tend to have poorer health. And really? Before, oh. Yeah, and before I go into that, what I'll say is that chronotype just describes differences between people in the time of processes that are regulated by our body's clocks, such that some people are night owls and some people are morning larks. And... This of course changes across the lifespan, as I mentioned earlier, we're at our latest as individuals around the end of adolescence. When we're born, we have very irregular sleep weight rhythms, but then as young people, we're early birds. And then towards the end of life, we're early birds once more. Mm. But among individuals of a given sex and at a given age, you see quite big discrepancies between their preferred sleep weight timing. Mm. And one of the reasons for this is probably just that some people don't give themselves very strong time cues each day. So they spend lots of time indoors and if they eat lots late at night and if they're exposed to lots of artificial light during what would otherwise be their sleep period, then that will tend to shift them later. Mm. And so that relationship between late chronotype and poorer health is probably in large part related to the fact that the late chronotypes have lifestyles that lead to later chronotype and lead to poorer health, if that makes sense. So there might not be anything yeah. inherently problematic about being a late chronotype. It's more that most late chronotypes are just people who don't engage in such healthy behaviors as their early counterparts. Now, with that said, there's been a little bit of work showing that late chronotypes might have slightly lower quality diets and they might also be more likely to abuse certain substances cigarettes, alcohol, some others. But in terms of sex differences, I, I don't know that there's a great deal of work showing that there are sex differences in preferred diet times. Mm -hmm. With that said, most of the work that's been done on this particular subject has looked at differences between countries. And I'm not very familiar with the research that's been done on people in Australia, if it has been done, there's been a fair bit looking at people in Europe and the Americas. Gerda Pop, who I think is still at King's College in London, has published a nice review on this. And she reported that there are broadly four different patterns of energy distribution. So in one of the patterns, which is common to North America and countries in Northern Europe, Northern Europe such as the UK, Later meals made up a relatively larger proportion of daily energy intake. And perhaps worryingly, this was particularly true of the UK, where the distribution of energy intake has shifted later and later in recent years. And mm. That might help explain why most people from my country aren't exemplars of robust health. <laughs> and then in Eastern Europe, breakfast and lunch made up the most energy. In South America, lunch made up the most energy. And then in Southern and Western Europe, 
people typically have quite a small breakfast, a big lunch, and then a moderate-sized dinner. But interestingly, there, there is a difference between the timing of meals and the distribution of energy intake. So right now, I'm in Italy, and in Southern Europe, people tend to eat quite late. But if you look at where they distribute their calories each day, then it's not so late. So those two things aren't necessarily perfectly concordant. And that is very important because there's been some really nice work showing that within a fixed meal pattern, so if you have people consume meals at the same time each day, if you shift where the calories are distributed such that they consume more of their calories at breakfast, for example, then they'll tend to experience some beneficial effects on their health. And there's a lady named Danielle Kubovics who's published some really nice work on this in the last seven years or so. And I often speak about the first study on the subject that she did. And what she had people do was undergo two 12 week long weight loss programs. And these people were overweight and obese women. And in one group, they consumed half their calories at breakfast for the 12 weeks. And in the other group, they consumed half their calories at dinner. And the two diets were effectively equivalent. So same number of calories, same macronutrient compositions. And what she showed is that when people had half their calories at dinner each day, they lost 4% of their body weight, which is good. But the early group who had 50% of their calories at breakfast lost 11%. So nearly three times as much weight. And the late eaters also lost less than half the amount off their waist that the early group lost. And the early eaters had larger improvements in their blood sugar and blood lipid regulation too. And so it's not necessarily that having a late time restricted eating period is problematic. The other thing that's really important to consider is where you distribute calories within that. And so for most people, reducing their, the size of their dinner, the calorie content of their dinner, and specifically the carbohydrate and fat content, makes a lot of sense. And I haven't really gone into the reasons why we tend to see these differences based on diet timing, but they relate to things like time of day differences in blood glucose regulation and glucose tolerance. So Frank Shears published some work showing that all glucose tolerance is perhaps 17% or so higher in the biological morning than it is in the biological nighttime. Mm. And if you look at, for example, diet-induced thermogenesis, then that tends to be higher earlier in the day. So for a fixed number of calories, you'll burn more energy metabolizing those calories in the morning than you will late at night. And so just to summarize everything that I've just said, mm. We don't know much about sex differences. Yeah. We don't know too much about chronotype differences, but in general, later chronotypes tend to have poorer quality diets. In terms of geographic distribution, there are quite clear differences between continents, but people in most continents tend to spread out their calories quite a lot. So there's been some work comparing adults in India to adults in the US, and in both instances, they spread out their caloric periods over about 15 hours or so on average. Mm. And then it's not all about the timing of this time-restricted eating period. It's also about the distribution of energy within that, such that if you can consume 
fewer calories later in your day, particularly from carbohydrates and fats, you're likely to experience some beneficial consequences on your cardiometabolic health. Hmm. So fascinating and so well explored, Greg. It's amazing. Your knowledge is is, is blowing me away. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add then, so if you're looking at a, a complete optimal time period, so with this time-restricted eating, by the sounds of it, from, from all those things that you've said, so if you're doing a six-hour um, period of eating, it would be better off, obviously, in the morning time into the, the late afternoon finishing. And would that be, from your perspective, the optimal way of doing a time-restricted feeding? Yeah, I'm always a little reluctant to speak about mm. Optimal. optimal yeah yeah of course everyone <laughs> is very different i understand <laughs> yeah and and i think the important thing is what's practical because yeah adherence to time-restricted eating is the important thing and the encouraging thing is that for the most part studies of time-restricted eating have reported good adherence yeah. typically people can stick to it for more than 80 percent of days and something to add is just that occasional departures from your caloric period are unlikely to be problematic. But returning to question, I think that practically a good place for people to start is with something like a 10 hour caloric period, because most people spread out their calories over a longer period of time than that. Yes. And I would have that as early as is feasible, but for most people, Dinner is important, and if they have families, it's especially important. And I think that the relative benefits of having an early time-restricted eating period might be more than outweighed by the benefits of eating dinner with your family. Mm, so absolutely. In terms, of, in terms of everyone's well-being. And so I'm not suggesting that people who have three kids stop eating dinner with their families <laughs> so, so bear that in mind yeah. but i think starting with a 10 hour caloric period makes sense making dinner smaller is likely to be helpful for most people and okay. practically what that can mean is focusing on consuming enough protein at that meal and about 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per meal seems to be about right for most people, particularly with respect to body composition and appetite regulation. Yeah. And if you struggle with having poor appetite regulation at night, if you find yourself hungry and disposed to consuming lots of processed snacks, then I'd focus on making foods consumed at dinner, not very energy dense. Mm -hmm. And so People find it helpful when they select foods such as fibrous green vegetables and berries and foods that are high in water and have a large volume, but don't contain that many calories. So simply doing away with things like oils and nuts and perhaps grains at dinner can be really helpful, especially during this initial period when your appetite is adjusting to your new approach. Mm -hmm. And then if people do take calories away from dinner, then they can assign those elsewhere within the caloric period. Mm -hmm. And I think shifting some of those to breakfast is generally helpful. The modifying factor here, which we haven't mentioned is exercise. And 
I think it's fine to consume a substantial proportion of daily calories and carbohydrates and fats around exercise. And if people exercise in the afternoon, for example, if they can only exercise after work, then I think that the distribution of energy intake is probably less of a concern. But on those days when you don't exercise, I would stick to this earlier assignment approach, if that makes sense. And then one more thing to add, which I haven't touched on, but just for the sake of completeness, is that if, say, your blood sugar regulation isn't very good, if you have prediabetes or diabetes, or if your fasting glucose just isn't quite what you'd like it to be, then I think that changing the sequence of foods at your meals can be helpful. There's a lady named Alpana Shukla who's published some interesting research on this in recent years. And what she's done is take people who have prediabetes or diabetes and have them go through different conditions with a washout period in between these. And in some conditions, they consume carbohydrate-dense items, so say a baguette, first at eating occasions and then protein and fiber and fat rich items 10 to 15 minutes later and then she's measured their blood sugar and insulin responses in the three hours or so after the meals and what she's shown is that when people consume carbohydrate rich items 10 to 15 minutes after other items their blood sugar responses are typically something like 40 to 70 percent lower than when they consume the carbohydrate dense items first. So when practical, if your blood sugar regulation isn't that good, I think it makes a lot of sense mm. to start your meals with protein, fiber and fat rich items. So think for example, of a salad mm. and then later the starchier items. So interesting and so true when you break it down like that. And even that, that just slowing down of the, the sugar responses in in the body that just makes so much sense yeah and and that's very important to all sorts of different long-term health outcomes yeah so if you look at people who have diabetes then it seems that those with more variable blood sugar are disposed to cognitive impairment and some neurodegenerative diseases such as such as dementia over mm. time yeah and so it's really important to try and do what you can to minimize those blood sugar excursions if you value lots of different aspects of your health, not just your blood sugar regulation, but also how well your brain works. Mm, absolutely. So fascinating. Um, I, I would love to keep on talking about this, but I do, I, I want to touch on that there. And jump into uh, sleep. So we've talked obviously a little bit about sleep, but I wanted to get your um, perspective on how much sleep we need. Um, even that we've talk, talked a little bit about the dietary strategies in terms of eating a couple of hours before bed, but what that actually means for sleep. So I'll start there. Okay. So I mentioned earlier that sleep changes across the lifespan. Yeah. And that's true of sleep duration as well. So if you look at National Sleep Foundation recommendations, then for newborns, they're advised to sleep 
14 to 17 hours each day. But by the time you are of the age that most people listening to this will be, their recommendations are seven to nine hours each 24 hours. And then for older, older adults, people who are 65 years or older, that recommendation is seven to eight hours each night. But with that said, the amount of sleep that you need will vary depending on several different factors. One of those is the seasons. If you live at high latitude and the photo period is quite different between the summer and winter months, then you probably find that during the long nights of winter, you'll need a bit more sleep than during the short nights of summer. If you've been quite sedentary and you start a physical activity program, then you'll probably find that you fall asleep at faster, your sleep quality improves, but you also sleep slightly longer. And if you are dealing with a mild infection, then you might find that acutely your sleep duration increases a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, one more thing to add is that there are genetic differences between people and how much sleep that they need. There are genetically short sleepers, but I don't think that most people realize that these people still need substantially more sleep than some people would have assumed. So I think when people hear genetically short sleepers, they might think that people can get by on three hours of sleep each night and function perfectly. And that likely is not the case. Of the different genetic mutations that have been identified so far, the shorter sleepers still need more than five and a half hours of sleep each night, or they still report sleeping more than five and a half hours of sleep each night on average. So with that said, the second part of your question was nutrition strategies for good sleep and lots of different dietary variables can influence sleep. Of course, I spoke earlier about diet timing and I think as a starting point, stopping consuming calories at least two hours before bedtime is helpful. I think you, of course, want to go to bed neither hungry nor full. And then in addition to those elements of diet timing, there are also certain dietary substances that should be timed appropriately. Caffeine is foremost among those, of course. Mm. And I generally suggest that people regularly consume no more than about three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight per day. There's a website named caffeineinformer.com that you can use to estimate your habitual caffeine intake. And I think that most people should not consume any caffeine later than about nine hours before their planned bedtime. But there are very large differences between people in how they metabolize caffeine based on several factors, one of which is genetics, one of which is just how healthy their livers are. So mm. people who have, for example, fatty liver disease might find that they detoxify caffeine much more slowly than people without that particular condition. Mm. And then there's alcohol too. And I don't want to be a buzzkill, but alcohol isn't good for sleep. Historically, people have used it as a nightcap, but when people consume alcohol, they tend to fall asleep a bit faster and they might spend a greater proportion of the early sleep period in the deeper stage of sleep, but then later in the evening, their sleep tends to fragment. And then if you measure their next day performance and subjective well-being, 
then both tend to be impaired by prior evening alcohol consumption. And so I think having alcohol in the smallest quantities possible and as early as possible is helpful for sleep. But practically, I, I tend to suggest that people don't consume it any later than four hours or so before sleep. And if people have more alcohol, then the timing is relatively more important. So if you had one drink three hours before sleep, then maybe that wouldn't be a, a big issue for you as an individual. But if you had two drinks at that time, then that would be potentially more problematic. Mm -hmm. Again, there are big differences between people and how they respond to alcohol consumption. But I think capping alcohol consumption no later than four hours before bedtime is a good place for people to start. And then diet composition is also important for sleep in other ways. And lots of different dietary substances have been studied in relation to sleep. So there have been quirky studies looking at things like kiwi fruit consumption, beef tomato consumption. Of the different foods that have been studied, the strongest evidence is probably for tart cherries, specifically mm. something like 60 milliliters of Montmorency tart cherry juice tends to improve sleep quality. And that's probably in part related to the presence of plant-based or phytomelatonin in tart cherries and there's also good evidence showing that tart cherries might have some other beneficial effects that, which are particularly relevant to athletes. So for example, regularly consuming that quantity of tart cherry juice may reduce running induced pain and it might have some positive effects on things like blood flow. So the composition is relevant, but then this also brings up supplements for yeah, sleep. And I think that's absolutely. generally what most people are most interested in i don't i don't think that sleep supplements are particularly important and it's not where i start with people when i help them with their sleep by any means and yeah. i actually generally find myself suggesting that people consume sleep supplements very rarely but of the different ones that are out there i think that if you're in a country where you can get your hands on melatonin mm -hmm. it's safe and mm -hmm. i think consuming something like 300 micrograms to five milligrams a day of regular melatonin an hour or so before bedtime will probably help you fall asleep slightly faster. doesn't seem to leave the tolerance over time. Safety profile is very good. Higher doses might be beneficial for some aspects of cardiometabolic health if your cardiometabolic health isn't very good. If you're in a country that regulates melatonin such that it's not available over the counter, then you could consume a couple of grams of L-tryptophan for, for a related effect just in that L-tryptophan is a precursor that's used to synthesize melatonin by way of serotonin. So a couple of grams of that at a similar time could be helpful, but not as good as melatonin. If you struggle to sleep through the night and find yourself waking up frequently, then I'd probably opt for a timed release version of melatonin, perhaps mm. two milligrams or so of that. I think one thing that's important to consider is the reason why you struggle with your sleep. And yeah. of the different reasons, I think anxiety is particularly problematic, especially right now. Yeah. And so if you find yourself with a bit of a monkey mind at night and that interferes with your sleep, then I think some anxiety reducing supplements or anxiolytic supplements could be helpful of these there's some evidence for 
lavender, specifically a brand named Selexum, 80 milligrams or so might be helpful. There's been a recent systematic review looking at the effects of L-theanine consumption on anxiety, suggesting that doses of 200 to 400 milligrams could help reduce anxiety in people who are prone to that. I think that ashwagandha, particularly KSM 66 ashwagandha at about 600 milligrams could be helpful in those instances. There are also some things that have only been studied quite recently, which are quite intriguing to me, but the data are preliminary. One of these is saffron. Yeah. There's a particular form of saffron known as Afron. It's just a patented extract. And that's been studied among people with anxiety and mood-related sleep issues. And I think 28 milligrams or so of that could potentially both help boost mood, but also improve sleep in those people. Then pain is sometimes a source of sleep problems. Mm. Occasionally, if somebody has suboptimal vitamin D status, then that can contribute to their pain. That's not so likely to be an issue if you live in Oz. But <laughs> Although I say, of... I say it a lot in clinic, tell you. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's too much sunscreen, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and it's difficult to give generic guidelines about how much vitamin D to consume in those instances. And I generally prefer people to boost their vitamin D status by spending more time without sun cream on in the sun, provided that they're responsible in doing so. Mm-hmm. And then of the other supplements that are out there, there's an endocannabinoid, or there's a cannabinoid, I beg my pardon, which is very interesting to me, named palmitoyl ethanolamide, which again has only been studied in recent years, but it consistently reduces certain types of pain. And there is some work showing that it can improve sleep duration and sleep quality in people who are experiencing pain. And the dose for that would probably be 600 milligrams twice a day. So that's encouraging. Mm, and then really finally, for, for people who are struggling with their sleep because of jet lag, can't beat melatonin. I think the sweet spot is around one milligram of melatonin. And there's a website named jetlagrooster.com that <laughs> provides a free guide on how to best time melatonin according to the nature of your travel. And so I'd have a look at that too. So just rattled off a list of supplements there. That's I don't know if you want to pick up on any of those in particular. Yeah, well, I use I use PA in clinic, or I call it PEA um, mm. for short. So I use that in clinic in my compounding, which I find really useful for pain. So that's, but I've not associated with um, pain and sleep, which is really interesting. And saffron the same. I use that for nervous system dysfunction, as I call it, and then um, obviously with an added bonus for sleep. But mm. I wanted to ask um, a quick question because I get this a lot in clinic, and we talk about it in. Um, in college and, and, and where I teach is that this typical wake up time of around 2am, 3am. Um, mm. what, what's that? What, what does that mean to you? It can mean lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it does, but it just seems this, this consistency that people mm. find that they're waking up around the two or 3am that may, sometimes they go to the toilet. Sometimes they don't. Um, yeah. For, for myself, I see it as a, a possibility of a, a cortisol um, increase at that particular mm-hmm. time of the morning. However, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. So I think cortisol is sometimes an issue. Mm-hmm. And if you look at people who have insomnia, then you often see a dysregulated cortisol rhythm. Mm-hmm. What you should see in a healthy cortisol rhythm is 
a large spike in cortisol synthesis shortly before wake time each morning. That's called the cortisol awakening response. And the purpose of that is to prepare the body for the stress, stresses of the day ahead. And that spike in synthesis will do things like mobilize stored energy reserves. It will increase blood pressure and it will have some arousing alerting effects too. And then later in the day, you should see the blood cortisol concentration wane such that it's at its lowest during the sleep period. But what you instead see in certain insomnia presentations is a spike in cortisol synthesis shortly before bedtime and a rhythm which is overall flatter with a, with a higher mean amplitude or a, a higher mean value. And cortisol, of course, is a diuretic and can contribute to things like nocturia or needing mm. to pee during the nighttime. Mm. But I mentioned earlier that it's arousing too. So I think dysregulated cortisol rhythm is sometimes one of the issues. I think sometimes the reason for waking up at night is very simply environmental. So yeah. having a bed which is too hot or too cold, being in a noisy neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Other times it's due to lifestyle. I know for me, if I overdo my caffeine consumption, then my sleep is much shallower and I'm more likely to wake up due to minor disturbances. But there are several components of lifestyle that can contribute to. So one of them is hydration. If people drink too much too late at night, then they're more likely to wake up. Other stimulants can, of course, contribute. And then I think also that having low energy availability over a long period of time can be a problem. So what I mean by that is that for people who are chronic under-eaters, their bodies and their brains in particular really want them to go out and source more calories for themselves. Hmm. And so what you typically see is that when people go through short-term energy restriction, you might see a, a temporary increase in things like arousal. And if that happens over a long period of time, then I think that sleep is likely to fragment. And this is such a common report among physique athletes and athletes in aesthetic sports, such as gymnasts, if they have to stay lean for their sport and they therefore eat very little, then they're not only disposed to reproductive issues and poor bone health, they also report sleeping very poorly. And so I think that's also an issue. And and that of course does relate to cortisol in part. Other reasons may include some dysregulation of sleep-wake circuits. So for example, among elderly individuals, their pineal glands may synthesize a bit less melatonin, which could plausibly contribute, although I'm not convinced that the effect of that is terribly strong. Mm. Sometimes waking up at night is due to a sleep disorder. So one of these, for example, is sleep apnea, which is a breathing-related sleep disorder in which the upper airway temporarily collapses. Mm-hmm. temporarily collapses during sleep and thereby leads to arousal mm-hmm. sometimes it's due to pain and then sometimes it's due to not having built up lots of pressure to sleep during the daytime so if you have people take a nap at lunchtime for instance then they will pay off some of the pressure that's accumulated to sleep with prior wakefulness 
And if they're not regular nappers, they may then find it harder to fall asleep at night and stay asleep through the night. And so practically, one of the most important tips for people in most of these categories is to stick to the principles of so-called stimulus control. And the idea behind stimulus control of behavior is just that certain stimuli predictably lead to certain behaviors. And the example that I always use is that if you're driving and you approach a red light, then you reflexively start to brake. So the stimulus, the red light, is leading to a specific behavior, which is braking. And what we need to do to be healthy sleepers is associate our beds, the stimulus, with being somewhere where we sleep, the behavior. And what happens in people who sleep poorly is that they learn to associate their beds with being somewhere that they're awake. So if you're struggling with your sleep and you have clinically diagnosable insomnia, then you may find yourself spending more time in bed hoping that at some point you fall asleep. But because you're spending a greater proportion of your time in bed awake, you're actually conditioning yourself to associate your bed with being awake. And so what you need to do is save your bed for sex and sleep only, only go to bed when you're sleeping. If you wake up at night and you've been awake for roughly 15 minutes, I don't suggest that people watch the clock, mm. just approximately 15 minutes, then you should get out of bed go to a different room, do something relaxing and dim lighting, and then only return to bed when you're actually sleepy. And if you do that, then over time, you'll train yourself to better associate your bed with being asleep and thereby improve your sleep quality. So again, another long answer, short answer is that there are lots of different contributors to that particular presentation. But I think that stimulus control is a good place for people to start for the most part. Mm. And that's a really good point about getting out of bed because it's something that someone, everyone would not be thinking to do. It's something that would be um, feeling unnatural to be forcing yourself out of bed to then become tired again, which is really useful. So that's amazing. Now, yeah, it's often. Sorry, you sorry. go, Greg. Yeah, you go. No, I was, I was just going to say it's often the last thing that people who haven't something mm. want to hear. I, I yeah. want you to spend less time in bed. <laughs> What the hell are you talking about? I already don't get enough sleep. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and this may be a, a long question as well, but I'll, this is sort of my last question before I want to get on to um, talk a little bit about resilient nutrition and then let you go. Um, I wanted to ask about specific mechanisms of, um, firstly, the, the, the validity of actually measuring sleep, so the, the REM and, and non-REM, um, and anything that you know of to improve either of those for people and that could be um we've talked i know a lot a lot already about things and so no alcohol caffeine mm. some of those supplements anything specific in the research improving either of those um different sleep uh, stages yeah so beginning with validity the gold mm -hmm. standard in assessing sleep is polysomnography and to have a so-called sleep study done you would go into a sleep clinic and you would be wired up in certain ways and you'd have clinicians assess you over the course of one night or multiple nights and they would look at all sorts of things from the patterns of electrical activity in your brain to your breathing to movements that you make mm -hmm. but obviously that's not practical for most people and so there are then practical methods to consider and i broadly divide these into a couple of categories so one is passive and the passive category includes 
wearables and mm -hmm. these are typically wrist worn so think of a fitbit or finger or thumb worn so think of the aura ring mm -hmm. and i think that the hardware that these devices use is often quite similar and so their accuracy probably in large part depends on the algorithms that run on the hardware and these algorithms are surely getting better over time and based on the work that's been published to date, comparing them to the gold standard method of assessing sleep, they seem to be okay at assessing sleep duration and overall okay. sleep timing. Mm. They're not typically so good at staging sleep, so looking at non-REM versus REM sleep. Okay. With that said, it's really difficult to tell how good they are because scientific research takes time to publish mm. and the tech world moves quickly. And so by the time a study has come out on a given wearable, they've probably upgraded their algorithms. Yeah. Of the different devices that have been studied so far, the, the Whoop is interesting because they published two studies recently on the validity of the Whoop, mm -hmm. both showing that the accuracy in staging sleep of the Whoop band is actually quite good. So, or at least in the context in which they've studied it. Okay. So... That's, that's encouraging. But with that said, I think that people need to consider how important it is for them to actually look at their sleep stages. Hmm. And for me as a practitioner, I'm actually not terribly interested in those data. If you look at the different dimensions of sleep health, which I divide into a few categories based on some work by the legend in the field of sleep research named Daniel Bicey, then one of them is sleep duration, one of them is sleep quality, which is quite difficult to assess, but it includes both your subjective sleep quality, how well you feel you sleep, but also some more objective measures of sleep quality. So sleep latency, how long it takes you to fall asleep, sleep efficiency, the proportion of time that you're in bed, that you're actually asleep. Mm -hmm. And then you could also look at some others too. And then there's sleep timing. So we spoke earlier about chronotype and its relation to health. And there's the variability of these different things too. And more regular sleep typically seems to associate with better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very interested in some measures of sleep quality, such as sleep efficiency and sleep latency, but I'm less interested in sleep staging until I'm confident that these devices actually accurately sleep stage. Mm, so that's one consideration. Yeah. And then alongside those passive ways of assessing sleep, there are active ones. So there are sleep diaries and I use these in practice. I particularly like one called the consensus sleep diary, especially for people who have insomnia. Mm -hmm. And then there are questionnaires, which for people who don't have sleep issues, I think are probably more helpful. And these assess sleep over longer periods of time. The most used of these is probably the Pittsburgh sleep quality index, the PSQI. And that assesses sleep over the previous several weeks. So if mm -hmm. you're a healthy person and you don't have clear sleep issues, and I think just occasionally completing a PSQI is probably helpful. Now, with that said, you asked about specific stages of sleep and whether mm. there are ways to improve them. Different sleep stages seem to be important for different things, although there's some overlap between what the stages are important for. Non-REM sleep is when our bodies produce lots of growth hormones. So it seems to be very important to the restoration of certain bodily systems, connective tissue and so on. And it also seems to be a time at which our brains clear out toxins 
and it's important to memory formation among other things. REM sleep on the other hand seems to be important to cardiovascular health, particularly important to emotion regulation. And interestingly, humans have a relatively larger proportion of their sleep as REM sleep than mm -hmm. all other primates. And it's thought that that REM sleep, rich sleep is one of the factors that's contributed to the development of our intelligence. Now, with that said, in terms of what people can do to improve their sleep, the, one of the main determinants of non-REM sleep, and I'm speaking now specifically about the deeper stage of this sleep, which is known as slow wave sleep, mm -hmm. is energy expenditure during the day. And the reason is that the main sleep promoting chemical that accumulates in the brain with prolonged wakefulness and activity is adenosine. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is a breakdown product of ATP. And if you think about it, it's intuitive in that things that you do when you're awake that require ATP for energy need to a breakdown product that promotes sleep, which is mm -hmm. a state in which ATP stores can then be replenished. That's like and, light bulb moment. That's that's I've never had it put that way before. <laughs> I'm like, of course, of course. Yes. That's the way when you do so much activity, when you do so much even physical activity, you sleep mm -hmm. so heavily and soundly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. And the same is probably true of cognitive activity too. Yeah. In the cognitively demanding tasks probably promote the breakdown of ATP into free adenosine and thereby support healthy sleep mm. and so anything that you do during the day that increases energy metabolism and perhaps increases growth hormone may be helpful for promoting the deeper stage of sleep and so think exercise cognitive training and this could include mindfulness practices and then also passive heating so there's quite good evidence showing that when people have a hot shower or similar, one to two hours before bed, 10 minute shower, about 40 degrees Celsius is typically what I recommend. And they'll fall asleep slightly faster and they'll feel like their sleep quality is better and perhaps their sleep efficiency will be higher too. Mm. But then there are also some nighttime activities that seem to facilitate slow wave sleep. And some of these are practical and some of them aren't so practical. Olfactory stimulation is one of them. So just inhaling lavender, having lavender by your bedside might be one of them. Mm -hmm. And there's vestibular stimulation. So rocking somebody's bed while they're asleep mm. will actually so entrain. Yeah, that's it. So that will actually entrain slow wave activity in the brain. Then there's auditory stimulation, the delivery of specific frequencies of noise, so-called pink noise. Mm -hmm. in time with some brain waves, slow waves, will tend to increase the amplitude of those slow waves. But right now that's not fit for prime time. And then there's transcranial stimulation and of the different stimulation methods. I think TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, is the most efficacious. But again, that's not something that I'd ever recommend. So practically, mm. I, think, I think exercise cognitive training and passive heating are the most helpful. And then some olfactory stimulation can be helpful too. And then in terms of REM sleep, the most important thing is just to get enough sleep. Mm. And that's because of the way that sleep is regulated. 
And what I mean by that is that I mentioned sleep pressure, which is important to building lots of pressure to sleep and thereby consolidating sleep and ensuring that sleep quality is high. But then our body's clock system gates the timing of sleep, which is why we're not sleepy in the mid-afternoon or the mid-morning, but we do become sleepy at night. And the body's clock also seems to influence the timing of sleep stages. And that's one of the reasons why we have most of our REM sleep relatively late in the sleep period shortly before we wake up in the morning. Mm. And one thing that people have experienced recently is so-called COVID-19 dreams. And the reason for that is likely just that most people have more control over their schedules now. They're getting a bit more time in bed. So they're sleeping later into their sleep period and they're therefore more likely to awake from their dreams. Dreams, yeah. Makes sense. So yeah, so I think just getting enough sleep is important to REM sleep optimization. But mm. then beyond that, there's not particularly good evidence showing that many things will influence REM sleep. And it's difficult to approximate what good REM sleep is. Mm. It's it's more difficult than it is to assess slow wave sleep. With that said, if you look at the regulation of REM sleep, that's partly controlled by cholinergic neurons in certain brain regions. So the lateral dorsal, lateral dorsal tegmental nucleus and the pedunculopontine nucleus. And one of the subpopulations of these neurons is selectively active in REM sleep. And so things that you can do to enhance acetylcholine signaling may influence REM sleep. And this has been shown for certain cholinergic agonists. So there's one called Carbachol and for some acetylcholinesterase, cholinesterase blockers and acetylcholinesterase is the enzyme that degrades acetylcholine. And one of these that's been studied is neostigmine. And mm. these particular drugs will lead to quite long lasting and intense REM sleep. So based on that, it seems plausible to me that some cholinergic supplements could have some somewhat similar effects and widely used cholinergic supplements include things like citicoline and alpha GPC, but that's mere speculation. I just think that mechanistically it makes some sense. Mm -hmm. So REM sleep, I'm not so sure, but I think getting enough sleep is the most important thing. And then otherwise, anecdotally, a lot of people report that their REM sleep becomes more vivid when they're undergoing particularly strong emotions mm -hmm. or if they are in very different environments. And so mm. that's probably one of the other contributors to the so-called so-called COVID-19 dreams. Mm. Very interesting. And you've broken it down so well. Thank you, Greg. That That's so insightful. It's amazing. Um, and really simply put, but also very technical in a way that it all makes sense. It's so cool. That's really um, made it very, very, very simplified and also, um yeah it makes sense clinically for me for clients too so thank you that's great Pleasure. <laughs> um so finally i wanted to ask you about resilient nutrition now a mutual friend of ours boomer has told me that we need to get it over here in australia because they're <laughs> so tasty and they're so addictive and i think is it resilient nuts he's like oh jody you gotta try this and i'm like oh can you send me some over <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, tell me a little bit about why it's been created and, and, and where it's sort of headed. And then finally, after all that, where we can find you and more information about all of that you're about and uh, researching and all that sort of thing. Sure. So Resilient Nutrition was born of some work that my friend and colleague, who's the CEO, Ali McDonald and I did last year with a couple of athletes who were getting ready to row the Atlantic in the Talisca Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Mm -hmm. And their names are Dave Spellman and Max Thorpe. And if you think about two hundred kilo plus guys rowing round the clock for weeks at a time, they need a lot of calories, but they mm. also face certain problems. So one of these, of course, is nausea from being on board and just struggling to eat enough food to keep up with such high rates of energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. One of them is the stability of foods that they take on board. Because if you take lots of fruit with you, then it's going to perish very quickly when you're under such strong sun. And then one of them is minimizing the mass that they take on board with them because the lighter the boat, the faster it can go. And so that coupled with Ali's experience with endurance activities, he is a part-time ultra runner. He actually recently did a hundred K run just for shits and giggles because that's what he's like. <laughs> Led us to formulate prototypes of what is now our first product, which is named long range fuel. And Ali was just sick of certain negative consequences of consuming widely used endurance products, carbohydrate gels, sports drinks, and energy bars. They just left him bloated and with energy swings. And also I think over time didn't really have particularly positive effects on his health mm. and so the convergence of those two different things led us to start concocting long-range fuel prototypes and the two rowers then relied on these during their crossing and they actually finished in january this year and we take no credit for this but they broke the world record which is cool wow so it's incredible even yeah, it's already been trialed in, in that type of context, but we've had lots of very positive feedback about long range fuel from lots of other athletes too. Everyone from Leslie Patterson, who is a multiple world champion mm. in a type of triathlon, and then also some strength of power athletes, but knowledge workers such as Boomer and myself use them in some more familiar context to most of the people listening, <laughs> just in the recognize that one of the determinants of physical endurance is also brain endurance and so mm. we've also been intent on optimizing these for brain function too now in terms of the products themselves what they are is basically really tasty whole food based nut butter based products that are enhanced by the addition of certain ingredients which are dosed according to research on those ingredients mm. to boost that and keep you calm and alert and support resilience and long-range fuel comes in four different forms which are better suits different times of day which is in accordance with what we've discussed today mm. and so the energized products contain added caffeine and l-theanine mm -hmm. caffeine people be familiar with it supports physical performance but also tends to boost mood and alertness sustain attention and have some positive effects on brain function and then the L-theanine, 
helps people better cope with stress and has been studied in conjunction with caffeine and tends to reduce mind wandering. Mm-hmm. And so this particular form is ideal at the start of a long working day before exercise or during very long exercise. And it can also be helpful during travel across time zones too. Mm-hmm. Then there is a calm version of the products, which contains 600 milligrams of KSM 66 ashwagandha per hundred grams. I particularly like this one in the evening, just in that ashwagandha has been shown to support sleep in people who have insomnia. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing about ashwagandha is that it both tends to reduce anxiety, but also support exercise performance. When people regularly consume it over time, it tends to boost cardiorespiratory fitness, but can also enhance adaptations to strength and power exercise, such that mm. people gain muscle and hence strength slightly faster when they regularly take ashwagandha supplements. And then both these energized and calm versions are also available with added whey protein isolate and L-leucine. And we add L-leucine because it's the only amino acid that by itself can stimulate the synthesis of new proteins in skeletal muscle. Mm. And it also has some positive effects on appetite regulation. And so these Mm. high protein versions are particularly well suited to being used as meal replacements. And we've got versions that are available for people on different diets, including vegan diets and people on keto diets. And we are, of course, working on our our future product pipeline too. And I can't really disclose much about that, but some of it relates to some of the things that we've discussed today. I'm very much looking forward to getting those out there to the big wide world. And one more thing that I'll just mention is that we, we try and do some good long way. We by no means are experts in sustainability, but we avoid plastic in our packaging. We avoid using palm oil because frankly, it's not very good for the planet. We also give a fixed proportion of our sales to a charity named the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, which works with communities and governments in tropical countries to help people protect their rainforests and thereby defend biodiversity and mitigate climate change Mm. and that charity has been independently studied and shown to be effective in doing what they claim to do and so we are really keen to to try and make sure that we're having a net positive effect on the environment along the way because i really like the natural world as does me as do you (laughs) that that is important to us too and the website is the website is resilientnutrition.com and we are on social media. Instagram is the best place to find us, but Facebook's good too. The handle is at resilient nuts. And then <laughs> my my personal social media handle is at Greg Potter PhD. Always embarrasses me at how indulgent that sounds, but it's just because <laughs> Greg Potter was taken. How about and Dr. I, I Greg do, Potter? How about, why, why not Dr. Greg Potter? <laughs> uh, because then people think that that means I'm a real doctor, but I'm actually just a peer. <laughs> so people can reach out to me there too. Wonderful. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Thanks so much for your time, Greg, today. I, um, do you have any plans to get the Resilient Nutrition into Australia? Because we have so many athletes here that I think would have huge benefits out of that. Uh, yeah. it's definitely missing on our market. So um, as soon as you can get it here, we'll, we'll, we'll be very <laughs> happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope we do. 
Mm. And it's difficult at the moment because things are changing so much. We launched this company during the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been very interesting yeah. and, and poses headaches at times, but we absolutely plan to make it over to Australia. And it's difficult to tell when that might happen, but hopefully within the next couple of years. And Jody, if I'm ever in your neck of the woods, I'll make sure that I come on so that I can leave some with you. Oh, absolutely. I hope to travel soon once we're allowed to and um, even to London in January if it happens. So I may see you there. Good stuff. So thank you again so much. Your knowledge is incredible. I really enjoyed this conversation because it's one of my massive passions in um, helping clients with as well. So it really, um, it's taught me a lot. So thank you so much. And I'm sure it's taught a lot of people out there listening. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. No worries. We'll chat to you soon. For listening to the Revital Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Revital Health as well as our website revitalhealth.com.au for upcoming podcasts, workshops and speaking events. Find out about specials happening in the clinic and all the show notes and links mentioned in the podcast. Please remember that this information discussed here is general information and it is not intended to diagnose or treat individuals. Please speak to your healthcare professional before embarking on any new treatments, lifestyle changes, medicines or supplementation to assess your suitability. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you again soon.